Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Well, okay, we started off in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, about seven weeks ago. <laughs> and we've sort of taken a, uh, a, a, a diversion here. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, but now he, talking about Jesus, our high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Well, we started off thinking, what is covenant? What is covenant? And today we're talking about accountability and covenant. And it's the third message in that little mini-series of, the, of the, the, the bigger one. Accountability and covenant. And I don't, I'm not real good at titles. I want you to know that. I'm calling it covenant is a conditional partaking. And I'm going to have to explain that to you, obviously. When you come to know Christ, there's his, his unconditional love and His unconditional grace. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to measure up. There's nothing you can do to earn your righteousness. But once you become a believer, it becomes very conditional. Picture of that is Israel. Israel had all the land that God had given to them. But what happened? They didn't possess all of the land. In other words, they were able to possess only to the degree that they were willing to yield and to obey. Even though they had it, they didn't possess it all. It's just like in the Christian life. We have all of Jesus we're ever going to get the moment we get saved. But it becomes very conditional as to how much of that we partake of as we walk in, the, in this journey called the Christian life. Let's get into this. It's not my intention to take covenant from a secular culture, which is by the way known in every culture, and cram scripture into it. That is not what I'm doing. However, when we see scripture overlap, what we already know about the covenant in culture, we're trying to use those pieces to help us better understand our relationship with God. For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the accountability of covenant. Now, this is much more difficult than looking at our identity in covenant. It's one thing to know who we are in Christ, and that's so, it's, it's so good, and we want to shout when we see that, but it's another thing to know whose we are in Christ. We've seen that we're accountable because the covenant's a binding relationship. It binds us into the fact that we lose our right to independent living. So therefore, it demands an accountability to live that which you say that you are. But we're also accountable because our covenant was very costly. It cost God, His Son, for us to have this covenant relationship. But today we're going to see that we're accountable because covenant, once we're in it, is a conditional partaking of His divine blessings. Once covenant is made with God through Christ, it becomes very conditional if we're going to enjoy the fullness of what He offers. All ancient covenants required a sacrifice, which we have said, which was a substitute for the individuals entering into covenant. Once they had cut the animals, this path became known. They'd lay one half on one side, one on the other. It became known as the, known as the, the, the path of blood or the way of death. 
It was in this sobering setting that they would cut their wrist and the blood would flow. Leviticus says the life is in the blood. They'd put the, their two hands together, two bloods becoming one blood. They were becoming one together, the life of one flowing into the life of the other. And they would tie it in a figure eight. An eight never stops. It's like a picture of infinity, like a zero would continue to go. You do a nine and bring it down, it stops. But this continues to flow. And as they were tied wrist to wrist, cut to cut, blood to blood, they would be standing there and as they they would say their vows to one another. Do you suppose that maybe if we, since marriage is a covenant relationship and we had it done this way that people might see it as a more serious thing. After the vows were spoken, then they would put a powder into the cut and that was for a reason. It would heal. But when it healed, it would leave a scar. This scar became a mark on the individual that he was in covenant with someone. Now, this mark of covenant is incredibly important, what we're going to talk about today. With this mark, only with this mark, one was granted the privilege of partaking of what the other possessed. I know it's sort of like a memorial in a sense. You know, when I I first got married, I had a, I have a wedding ring, and, and I used to think if it took the ring off, it would mess up the marriage, and finally it began to dawn on me. It was a mark. It set me aside that I'm in covenant with Diana. When I entered into covenant with Diana, I partook of her family. In fact, she has a huge family. I have one sister, natural sister on this earth, but now I have seven more beside in, in, in the family. I remember walking in trying to remember everybody's name. Hello, Danny. Hello, Steve. Hello, Carolyn. Hi, Patty. Hey, Chris. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Mary. I mean, they're running every which way. And it took me forever to understand who is who and, and try to figure out the ages. Now, of course, it's simple over the years. But I partook of her family. I partook of her possessions and and it, she didn't have a lot, but I partook of her possessions. <laughs> People say, our ship is coming in one day. Dinah and my ship sunk a long time ago. So when we receive Christ, we, receive, we immediately partake of his family. We immediately, there's something that happens the moment you receive Jesus in your life. You've got a family that's bigger than you could possibly imagine. You've entered into the family of God. They speak different languages. They have different colors. Their eyes look differently some places. But it's the same family. We enter into the family. He enters into us in the person of his Holy Spirit. We become God's children. Jesus becomes our elder brother, the firstborn. Let me read two passages to you. In John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Only those who believe in his name can have this promise. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. Now, this picture of receiving him into our lives is so important. This is covenant language, the the bloods becoming one. When when someone comes together, when you two become one, we see it in Colossians 1.27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ 
in you the hope of glory. Galatians 2.20, you've heard that a few times around here. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, in the context of husbands and wives, which is a beautiful picture of two becoming one, the Lord Jesus says, for to me, Paul says it, but he says, for to me, to live is Christ. Now, that's, that's Philippians. Paul says in Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. We're members of his body. We're part of his family. Jesus is our elder brother. He lives in us. You see where the two have become one. Now, we are marked as members of the family, as being in covenant with him and having his spirit living in us. There is a mark of covenant on believers. Now, this mark come, becomes the conditional guarantee. In other words, if we're going to partake of the blessings he's already given to us, this is the conditional guarantee right here that we can experience them. It's one thing to have them, and we do. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's another thing to experience them. So this mark becomes conditional because unless it's manifest in our lives, then we're not allowed to enjoy what's already ours, just like Israel. If we're not going to let this mark be seen, and we'll talk about that, how it's seen and what it is, then we're not going to experience the fullness of what we already have. So many people are trying to get into a room they're already in. They just don't know how to enjoy what they already have. What the mark is, is significant. This mark that identifies us as being in covenant with him and having his spirit living in us. Some people would say uh, it's to be a member of the church. No. Some people would say it's to be active within a church. No. Oddly, it's the same mark in the Old Covenant as it is in the New Covenant. And let me explain that to you. In the Secular Covenant, both partners, when they would enter in, the cultural thing that we're talking about, would have a mark put on them. They'd have a mark. And wherever they'd go, they'd be identified as being in covenant. In the Old Testament, God was marked with, as being in covenant with Israel. What is that mark and where is it? In Isaiah 49... And verse 16, it says, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. And the word palm can also be translated your wrist. Does that ring a bell? But there was a mark on the people of Israel that proved that they were in covenant with God. And I want to, to, to make sure you understand it was not circumcision. Circumcision was a sign only on the males on the part of the body that passed on the seed. No, that was not the mark. But what the, the, he's not looking for an external mark. But there's something else that's a mark. There was something God was looking for, for the people that were truly in covenant with him. It says in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, the people of God had been disobedient to God. And in their disobedience, we see what the mark was supposed to be by seeing the, what it was not. In other words, it was not evident in them. This, God was looking for something he did not see in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 5, 24 says, and here, listen carefully, verse 24, if you want to see that mark, they do not say in their heart, 
They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. God was looking for something inward. It was a heart matter. It was not a matter of simple rote obedience that God was looking for, but it was a heart that was willing and wanted to obey him. In fact, their very inability to demonstrate this mark led right into the new covenant. In promising the new covenant, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. And this is something about the new covenant, first mentioned to Abraham, but then brought and made, made more clear even in Jeremiah. And then in Ezekiel 26 and verse, or 36, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This new heart, this new radically changed heart is a desire to yield to God with no strings attached and that is the attitude and that is the mark that God looks for on those who are in covenant with him. Not mere external obedience but a heart that is surrendered and wholeheartedly yielded to him. In the New Testament, God again has a mark. Just like in the Old Testament, he said, I've written you on the palms of my hands, on my wrist. They had a mark that he was looking for, but they couldn't measure to. And there was a whole heart to serve him. Some did, Caleb did, but, but the nation as a whole could not get there. We see this mark in John 20, 24 through 27. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, in his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side <clears throat> and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Can you imagine forever that the God man in heaven is going to bear the marks and all of eternal eternity, we're going to be reminded of what it costs God for us to be in covenant with him and to be a part of his family. It boggles my mind to think of a glorified body that has marks on it. The marks of covenant. And he bears them even today. But what about us? What is the mark on us? It's the same as in the Old Testament. Christ has changed our hearts by coming to dwell in them. We are a part of the new covenant promised to Israel and long before that to Abraham. In order to give us a new heart, he has come to live in our hearts in the person of his Holy Spirit. He's the one who puts the desire within us. He's the one who changes our hearts. If you're here today and you claim to be a believer and there's no evidence of a changed heart, you've got a problem. You have a biblical problem. Because when Christ comes into you, he comes into your spirit, into your heart. He comes in and changes you from the inside out. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. 
And he says he's praying for them. He said that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Where? In the inner man. But where's the inner man? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell. The word means to be at home, fully at home. In your hearts through faith. You see, he has given us a divine want to. That's incredible. He, the want to is his want to. He's come to live within us. He desires to do the will of his Father. They walked in total harmony. He puts that same desire within us. And the only time it's manifested, the only time people around us can see it, is when we're willing to bow, when we're willing to yield to him in given circumstances. God gave us a new heart which is one that is yielded to him. God's mark is not baptism. We did the same thing that the Jewish people did. They made it circumcision. And as if somebody was circumcised, that protected his family. We do the same thing with baptism. No, no, no. Those are external marks. It has to be an internal change of the heart. Many people wonder how I could have been a pastor, not a, not a preaching pastor, but how I could have been on staff for eight years and then come to know Christ. Easy. My heart had never changed. Even though I knew what to do and I knew these types of things and I knew the language, I just didn't know Christ. And from the night that I bowed before him, my wife said, I've, never, I've seen the difference since that day in your life. This internal mark of wanting to obey him identifies us. Now, that condition, like I said, we start partaking of that nature. We begin to experience that nature that's already been given to us only when we surrender to him. We begin to take of his, partake of his divine fullness. And on that sense of the word, what we have is conditional. What we partake of is is conditional. That's why we ought to be accountable. It's not going to be seen in us until we've yielded, until we've bowed before him. Three things that we get to partake of when we're yielded and bowed before Christ. And others will see the the evidence. First of all, when we surrender, he gives us the privilege to partake of his divine nature. In 2 Peter, we read chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, inward and outward, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So, when we received Christ, he changed our heart. We began to partake of his divine nature. We have a brand new heart. But what is his nature? What is it? What is his nature? In John chapter 4, the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. He sent them over to McDonald's and said, hey, bring back some uh, burgers. In the meantime, he's dealing with the woman of Samaria. You remember the story, how she's been so significantly ministered to. She runs back and tells her whole family of what has just taken place. In verse 30 and 31, they come back. They've got food for the master. And when they get there, he says, I'm not hungry. I could just hear these lunkheads, these disciples. Are you kidding me? 
You mean there's a Cracker Barrel around the corner and we went all the way into the city to get McDonald's? Somebody's already fed him. He's already eaten. But Jesus answered him in verse 34 of John chapter 4. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And here is the heartbeat of God right here on earth to help us understand what this mark is. It's the mark of a changed heart for us. But it's the mark of his heart while he was among us. To do the will of the Father is not natural to the flesh. And if you don't believe me, in the next circumstance you go through this difficulty in your life, go to God's Word and see how your flesh responds to it. It is not natural. This is something that's supernatural that God has to do within an individual when he becomes a believer. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the evidence that we are in true commitment with God, the outward evidence, that which people can see, is a changed heart that now desires only to obey God. When this is seen, then we are have partaken and we can partake of his divine nature. A heart that wants to do God, to do only what God wants, is a miracle. I was, uh, you know I love to hunt, and that makes people sad, mad, or glad, I'm sorry. But I said hunt, I didn't say shoot. Uh, if you ask the game that I've hunted over the years, who won? I mean, it's hands down. <laughs> I didn't. But I like to hunt. I would use my hunting as an opportunity and a platform to share Christ. When I was living in the South, you could go anytime you wanted to as long as you were within the season. Not like it is out here. They tell you when you go and when you stop going, and it's diff different. And I remember we was at a hunting club down in the swamps of South Carolina. Actually, though, it was Mississippi. It was all of them swampy all the way across there, but it was Mississippi. Because I had a good friend that had some land. And if you shot the deer, it had to have the kind of antlers that you would mount. I mean, you, it was a trophy place. It was one of those kind of places. I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night saying, can I go, can I go to God? And uh, I was teaching there in Romans 6 one year. We had this guy, we had a rule, no smoking. And yes, I know it causes physical problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason we did is because we have such lunkheads and rednecks down there that burn the woods down. So we didn't want them smoking while they were there. But this one guy would come every year. How did he get on a Christian deer hunt? I mean, why? <laughs> that's not an oxymoron, by the way. How did he get on that hunt? And what we was mainly, he would start acting real nice for several weeks until he could finally go. And he'd get there, and when I would do the messages, sitting on a four-wheeler, mud all over us because being in that swamp, teaching Romans 6, 7, and 8. Can you imagine? And I remember every year he would be behind the truck over there, and you could see the smoke coming up from behind the truck. And we're thinking, man, he just doesn't get it. And finally, one year, I, it was the year I was doing Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I finished my message and got ready to get ready to go back for the afternoon hunt. We'd had some lunch. And somebody came to me, and I didn't notice, I didn't see him anywhere. He was always hide during the Bible studies. And he said, you need to come over and talk to him. He told me his name. And I went over to where he was behind the, the truck was parked facing us, and the tailgate was down, so I had to go around the truck. And he's sitting on the tailgate of the truck, and just sobbing, sobbing. And I said, what is wrong? He said, man, every year I've come, and I've tried to hide from the Word of God. I thought all this stuff was foolishness. I just like to deer hunt. He said, my family's falling apart. And he said, today I heard what you said. 
And I want to ask Jesus to come into my heart. What a sweet time. We got down on our knees and he prayed and received Jesus into his heart. Now, if that was a true experience, then he, he, he partook of the nature of God. The Spirit of God came to live within him. Suddenly, he had a changed heart towards God, towards his word, towards his will. That's what happens when you get saved. Well, I, I'm always a little skeptical because I want to find out what happens when they go home. Because I'll have to deal with him next year if it doesn't happen. He'll be back. We got home and I didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. Two weeks went by. Finally, I get a phone call one day and this guy was so excited I had to slow him down on the phone. And I said, what's going on? He said, oh, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne. He said, he came back. We had a service Sunday like you would not believe. His two teenage daughters that were so rebellious, he shared Christ and what had happened in his own heart. They watched him for a week and they got saved there in the house and they came forward Sunday morning. He said his wife came forward with him and asked God to forgive her for the bitterness she's had in her heart towards this redneck that wouldn't get right with God. And all four of them got at the altar and he said, Wayne, it had such an impact on the church. The whole church began to deal with things in their life. And I was thinking to myself, there's that new nature. There's that mark of covenant. There is a changed life for somebody who says that they're saved. If you say you're saved this morning and your life has not changed, you do not know Jesus. And I can say that with the authority of God's Word. Therefore, we are transformed. We're brand new creatures, Paul said. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have watered down salvation to the point in the 21st century, we don't even recognize it anymore when we see it. Now, we need to understand this. There is a mark. Does that mean perfection? Oh, are you kidding me? But there's a changed heart. And buddy, from now when you mess up, you know you've messed up. And you know where you're going to go back to the same place that you received him. Secondly, he gives us the privilege to partake of his divine blessings. His divine blessings. God wants to bless you, by the way, this morning. Not one thing you could do to make him love you more. Not one thing you could do to make you, him love you less. He's given you every spiritual blessing. We mentioned that in Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 3, he wants you to partake of them. He wants you to walk in the fullness of what he offers to you. He wants me to do the same. He tried to tell Israel this. And if we could just go to the Old Testament and see the illustration of what we're talking about. In Psalm 81, verse 10 and 11, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Look what he says. Go out and do a lot of good works and I'll bless you. No. Go out and try your hardest. No. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's all he asked of us. Verse 11 says, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. Have you ever seen a mama bird with a baby bird? Man, they go out and they do the work. We've got them in our backyard and we'll have to watch them. And they got all kinds of stuff in their mouth when they come back. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask what some of it is. And they come back and there's all those little mouths. You know what a baby bird is? It's a piece of, it's a mouth with a piece of meat hanging on it. It doesn't know what else to do. All it does is cry out, cry out. And that mama just pokes that stuff down. And as soon as they get it down, they're crying out for more, crying out for more. And that mama is giving it to them. Dinah loves her ferns from the south. I think all plants ought to be artificial. Those ferns have caused great trials in our relationship. 
But every summer, every spring, she'd put those ferns out on the porch, water those things. But every spring, the birds would come and nest in those ferns, lay their little eggs. And Dinah suddenly became mama again. Forgot all about her ferns. She wouldn't let me water them because you'll drown the birds. The eggs are laying there. Don't water them as heavy as you've been watering them. And those little baby birds would hatch. She'd get the biggest kick out of that. She'd have to call everybody she knew to tell them about those little birds hatching from those eggs. And she just loved to watch that mama bird poke that food down their mouth. God says to Wayne today, he says, Wayne, you don't have to try harder, son. You don't have to go out and accomplish all of this stuff, Wayne. Wayne, all I want you to do is bow before me. Wayne, just the same way you received me, bow before me. Wayne, just cry out, Wayne, I'll fill you with everything I've already given to you. And that's all it's about. But I want to tell you, when that mark of a a yielded heart is not being manifest, and the flesh has, has has overcome it, what happens is, we don't get to, to partake in the feeding that he wants to give to us. At Romans 8, 15 to 17 says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery again, leading to fear again, but you have received a, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out what? You know the passage. Abba, daddy, father, he's holy, but he's like a daddy. He, he is everything I'm not. He's the I am. Somebody asked me one day, Wayne, what does it mean by I am? I said, listen, you fill in the blank. Whatever you're not, he is. Well, why can't I experience it? Because you're so hard-headed, you will not bow. And when you bow, you tap into the nature. And the nature is the mark. And the mark opens the door. And you begin to enjoy what's already yours. How many times in my life God has tried to tell me this. Second, first, second Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God in him, Christ, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All the possessions of God are in Christ. They're not external. They're internal and they're eternal. And when we bear the mark, when it's manifested in our life, when people can see, yes, that's, yes, 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 that's a believer. How do you know? Look at his life. Look at his willingness to trust God when the darker the clouds get. Then that person is partaking of what we all have, but rarely ever experience. You say if covenant's a mutual giving, and it was a secular covenant. Is there anything I can give back to him other than my surrender? Well, in a sense, yes. And let me explain that to you. Matthew 25, 31 through 37. This is what a surrendered life does. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now listen, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited 
invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of the least brother, these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. To the extent that you did it to them, you did it to me. Rooted, I, I just want to make sure you see this. I've been saying it for so long. Maybe in this context you can hear it. Rooted in the changed heart to yield and obey God is the very heart of giving. It is a covenant mark. You cannot legislate giving. It's the consequence of a changed heart. It says in Acts 4, how the church began to share with one another and give one another their possessions. If I'm in covenant with God and I'm in covenant with you, then God's friends are my friends. God doesn't need the money, but God's friends do. And he directs me with my giving when my heart is desiring to obey him. That's why it says in 1 John 3, 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Giving to others is a mark of being in covenant with God that flows out of that one mark of saying, God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'm yielded to you. When that mark is present, we begin to partake of his divine nature. We partake of his divine possessions. And finally, we partake of his divine friendship. Friend is a covenant word. God called Abraham a friend. He called Moses a friend. But in the new covenant, he calls his disciples a friend. It says in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. Isn't it interesting that when we bear the mark of the covenant, which is changed, a changed heart to obey him, that we begin to manifest that we're truly God's friends. I, I love the song, what a friend we have in Jesus. I wonder in heaven if he could sing back to us, what a friend I have in Wayne. When we're his friends, he reveals things to us that otherwise would not be revealed. Did you know that? He said, that's mystical, Wayne. Really? Psalm 25, 14 says, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them to know his covenant. A friend can be trusted to tell something that you couldn't trust others to hear. I always wonder why some believers could not understand God's word. Finally, it dawned on me. Maybe they weren't living as God's friends. Only those with a tender, yielded heart are intimate with the truth that he wants to reveal. Intimacy is built into the word friend. When we yield to him, he reveals himself to us. You say, well, what do you mean? Why not yielded myself to him? Listen to Paul, the great apostle. He said that I may know him, Philippians 3.10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul, I thought you already knew him. And Paul would say, oh, oh, there's too much of me. There's too much of me. I want to be the less and less of me so that I can know more and more of him. There's so much more that he's given to me that I'm too hard-headed to bow to, to, to experience. 
Jesus told his disciples, if you will obey me, I'll come to you and I will reveal myself to you. In John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose, which means make myself known or reveal myself to him. It's amazing how much scripture I don't know today because I'm too hard-hearted or too hard-headed to bow and yield to where God can reveal it to me. Was it Dwight L. Moody when he got it, became a Christian, said there's a thousand mistakes in scripture. And on his deathbed, I think it was Dwight L. Moody, on his deathbed he said there's only one, but he said I'm too hard-headed to let God reveal that one to me. Scripture's not something you discover, it's revealed. And if we're not going to come before him with a yielded heart, if we're going to play whatever game we're playing with him, if we're going to mask the very nature he's put within us, the misery is next, but we will go no further in our understanding of him. I only get to partake of what I already have, his divine nature, his divine blessings, his divine friendship, when my heart and his heart are one. You see how accountable we are in, in covenant? Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you bear the mark of this morning? Are you his friend this morning? Are you partaking of what you know you already have in him? Just, just like with Israel, to every place on the sole of your foot treads upon, I have given it to you. Sole of your foot. Every time I treat every step as holy unto God, I can walk into that which he says is already mine. It's not a matter of getting it. It's a matter of partaking, and that's conditional. I wished I could take you back in my own life and help you understand how hard-headed I've been. I've told you. I still don't think some of you believe me. It's a lot worse than I've told you. But in those times that God has broken me, you know what is something? I try and I glean from every message I hear. I don't hear brokenness anymore. I don't hear that anymore. Until they come to the place of brokenness, that place of, oh my, oh, not oh me, it's oh my, it's both, is when you realize what a wretch we are apart from him and how all he says is, now come to me. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. It's so simple, but it's conditional. I don't even know what else to say. I love to wrap it up with something funny or a story, but I, don't, I can't even think of anything. I just want to ask you a question. Are you partaking of what God says is already yours? And if you're not, maybe when people look at your life, they don't see the mark of a changed heart it's humble and is yielded to whatever God wants. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.